I appreciate the lead-up that uh, Aaron gave me that he didn't know I spoke a year ago, which is always a good sign that that was riveting. And then Jim Garner comes up to me and says, I remember you spoke a year ago, and all I remember is what the definition of sprunt meant. And I thought, well, that, you really just captured the whole message. You just got it, man. I'm, just, I'm glad it was a life changer. So um, I was actually thinking today how much more uh, at home I feel than I did a year ago here. Not the whole part about being on staff, but really just feeling so much more at home. And it's just a really neat place to feel at home. So I love feeling at home. I love it when uh, uh, we would have people around our table, and uh, I don't know why, but some people would be afraid of me. And I found that quite funny because my kids certainly weren't afraid of me. And so when they would sense that somebody was afraid of me sitting around the table, they would do something that provoked me to show my humanness and uh, to try to take away this actual fear of what, uh, what I caused. Anyway, I just feel totally at home today. I feel like I am with family, that there's no fear. Um, one of the questions I ask myself, though, is I don't have a file of messages that I just pull out. I spoke last week at uh, a church in Ottawa, and it's so different, you know, and you, and you go there and you, you pray and you ask the Lord to show you, what you what's really on his heart, and you think you know what's on his heart, and you can get there and be like, okay, this is really like just pushing a rock up a hill or something like this. This is not going too well, but it was okay. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of okay, but I, I try to pick out the perspective of the church that I'm going to, and sometimes I go to churches with one way, and I don't even know what the church is about. I try to do a little bit of homework, and I try to quote some of their, if they have founding people like John Calvin, I quote Calvin and try to understand it, so it sounds like, wow, he sounds like a Calvinist. I don't know, it just sounds like something smart to say at a Calvinistic church. So, But there are some times where I know what I'm getting into, and I've been there a few times before, and I just want to tell you a couple little things that have nothing to do with the message. This is just the getting your attention and you know getting us all settled in around the table kind of deal here. So one of the things I like to do is if I know the church is very formal, I have a goal in mind, and there's one church that I go to, and I'm always shocked that I get invited back. Because the last time I was there, I had a goal in mind that I wanted to get them to laugh because they don't show any emotions, none. And I was, thanks, Jim, you actually got it already. I was so impressed because I actually said something, and I caught about five or six of them off guard, and they laughed in church. Now, they laughed very guardedly, like, whoa, and then they stopped thinking. And I smiled. Mission accomplished. I don't know if I'll ever... Actually, I was invited back. That's funny. I haven't been able to go back, but I was invited back. So I I still didn't uh, blow it by actually getting them to laugh. But what I really seriously do is I don't have a file of things that I pull out and think, oh, yeah, I'll just do number 301 or something like that. Probably because I lose my file anyway, and I wouldn't remember it. And kind of like you, Jim, it's like, yeah, that was really boring. How did anybody even stick through that? I want something fresh. I want something that God's saying today. And so I was... um, Asking the Lord over the last few weeks, I said, so what, what do you want me to share? Like, what's on your heart? So I try to listen, and, uh, you know, I want it to be interesting. I want you to stay with me. I want to stay with it. But, you know, there are pressures on you, especially if you're going and the guy's a great teacher or you hear other people preaching. You think, wow, I can never preach like that. But I was actually thinking of, Richard, I was thinking of you playing hockey. And it didn't stop you from playing hockey that you were not one of the pros. I mean, there's a contrast between the way you play hockey and other people play hockey, but it doesn't stop you from playing hockey, does it? Stick with me here, buddy. It doesn't stop you from playing hockey, does it? Are you turning the mic off on me so nobody can? Okay, good. <laughs> 
But I was actually thinking, you're, you're inspire me. Because if you think that you're just actually a great teacher and you're born a great teacher, you're not. You develop a gift of teaching. You learn a gift of teaching. You don't know how to play hockey, especially if you're in the UK and you've not played hockey very much. You learn how to play hockey. And some guys are just really good at it. And some guys are just really, really good teachers. And other guys are kind of like, yeah, they're learning. They're growing. So I don't know where I'm at in that spectrum. But I know one thing. I love to tell stories. So we're going to have a story today. I'm not really a great teacher. I'm not really a great student, but I love stories, and I love the power of, your story, of a story. So I was listening to Jesus, and even saying that, that's funny to say that, because I'm amazed by how many people are uncomfortable when you say you listen to Jesus. So I was raised in a denomination, which I smile at sometimes, and we were taught that we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The problem was is that the personal relationship wasn't two ways. He didn't talk, and he just, I just told him what to do, and he didn't reply back. He didn't need to because I told him what to do and, and just bless it. That's all that was required. And I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I'm amazed by how many people say they have a personal relationship with Jesus and, and don't hear him. They really don't hear him speak. And sometimes it's because we don't know that we can hear him speak, and sometimes we don't wait long enough to hear him speak. So this week I was out in my backyard working and in the stillness of it that's probably where I do most of my listening and my thinking and I said Jesus what is your heart you know I had ideas floating through my head but what is your heart what is what is it you want to share and I heard this and we had a discussion I always lose in these discussions but we had one I heard Jesus just say tell you that I'm lovely (laughs) and I thought Okay, that sounds just a little bit like, you know, like that's not, like nobody uses the word lovely. Aren't you aware of that? It's just nobody uses the word lovely. It's, it's just a weird word. Tell them that I'm commander-in-chief of the heavenly hosts, and that sounds like, yeah, I like that one. But lovely sounds like, oh, okay, what are we going to do with that word? So I tried Googling the word, and it didn't help me much. It says... Lovely is lovely. I think, wow, that's deep. There was one thing that I really liked about the word lovely, and it means that somebody that's lovely is somebody you want to give your life to and follow. And I thought, okay, I'm going with that definition. I like that one. Tell them I am somebody worth giving your life to, and you can follow me. See, when you love somebody, you trust them. And trust flows actually out of love. Jesus won't ask you to do anything. I I hear stories, and I remember stories about, oh, I'm just really afraid Jesus is going to ask me to go to Africa, and I'm not ready to go to Africa. I promise you, he prepares you for what he's calling you to do, even if it's something incredible. He always prepares you for it. And anything that I've been led into has been led out of love. It hasn't been ripped out of me and said, you've got to take this and give it up. It's been something that I actually just want to give up because I love him more. So it's interesting to come to a place of realizing, okay, when I love you, I can actually trust you. When my kids were small, we lived in a townhouse down in Britannia. And uh, we have four kids. They're all close together in age. They're still all close together in age. (laughs) They all have kids that are close together in age. So it's like, wow, these are fun family times. Two two two-year-olds and an almost two-year-old, and they're all boys. Like, woo that's a fun one. So, yeah. Um, Anyway... My kids would, I'd come through the front door, and uh, my kids would stand on the stairs, depending on their ages, 
and they'd meet me by jumping off the stairs and landing into my arms. And that was just a ritual. Now, it's funny, as they get older, kind of like some of where your teens are at, and like you come home and they don't even know you're home. <laughs> and it's like, wow, hello, hello, anybody, dad's home. And it's like, yeah, 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 nobody. Even. But when they're small, you're a hero. That's why second time around being your grandparents really cool because you get it back again. And, and I think that's really fun. But anyway, my kids would jump off at the, uh, from the stairs and they'd land in my arms. And Jesus often speaks to me through just ordinary natural events. I'm not a very profound person, but I, I learn through situations. And Jesus just actually just spoke to me really clearly. And he said, uh, if I asked you to jump, would you? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Why do your kids jump then? Because they trust me. Why do they trust you? Because I've never failed them. Why do you not trust me? Have I failed you? Yes. Really? No. But from my perspective, yes. So really, I don't know really how to trust you because there have been times when I've trusted you and, in my opinion, you failed me. Wow. Well, I want you to come to a place where you absolutely just love me and you trust me. And in the end, those places where I have seen, where I thought Jesus had failed me, man, those are the things that have made me who I am today. Those have been the growing points. Those have been the sweet spots. Those have been the place where I've seen Jesus the most. I just didn't know it at the time. So in the New Testament, Jesus begins his ministry. And, I, and depending on which gospel you read, it's kind of a little bit of a different story, depending on which gospel you're reading. But I love the story of how he calls Peter. I, I like Peter because if you actually, um, you know the way, have you ever heard that a daughter marries their father, like a, a man like their father? Well, it's absolutely not true with my kids. They married men that have nothing to do with me. They're, they're, their men are, like, they're, they're handy men. They build stuff that stays together. They are electrical. They know how to work computers. I just found out this week that Google and Gmail are the same. I mean, I don't even know how to say it. Jake, what did I find out? They're the same thing? Yeah, how about that? I just found that out this week, and it was an amazing thing. So my daughters have absolutely not married anybody that I think, like, is like their dad. <laughs> I have a son-in-law that has butt crack when he bends over. I have never had butt crack in my life. Absolutely never. My wife just looked at me like, you just actually said that? Everybody knows he does. He knows it. So I love the fact that these fishermen were actually, you know, fishermen, they were the, they were the rough ones of the crowd. They were the not refined ones. So when he goes and calls Peter, it's one of the first one he calls, Peter and John, and he calls it, they were the rough. They, they didn't speak properly. They were not from the upper echelons of society. They were outspoken. They were noted for being foul-mouthed. Um, they were not trendy. I was thinking that if I had to wear skinny jeans, I'd have to buy two pair and have my wife sew them together because they just don't make them this size. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of people that are called today, and if you want to be part of their ministry, you've got to be trendy. I mean, you've got to have the hair that goes up like this and what would you do with a head like this? I mean, you just you can't possibly be called to ministry like that. So Jesus goes to a fisherman and says, hey, come on, guys, I'm calling you. 
and there's absolutely nothing trendy about them. They're the kind of like, who would ever choose them? So John, the Gospel of John records it that, um, first of all, that Peter uh, was called to meet Jesus through his brother Andrew, who had heard of Jesus, and brings uh, Peter along and says, come meet this Jesus, and Jesus introduces himself to, to um, Peter, first of all, before he actually calls him at that point. Matthew comes along and says, um, the Gospel of Matthew says that Jesus is walking along a shore, and Peter's out fishing. And so Jesus is kind of scoping the land, just seeing what Peter's doing there. And Luke, Peter has just, uh, Luke records that Peter has just finished unsuccessfully fishing. And he's mending his nets, tying them all up, doing all that kind of stuff. And Jesus walks along the shore and takes the boat out and says, Peter, push me out, push me out. I want to talk to all these people around you. So Peter pushes Jesus out into a boat. Jesus is standing in a boat, which was likely Peter's boat. And um, Peter listens to Jesus speaking and teaching. And uh, then afterwards, I don't know how Jesus got back in, but um, you know in all the pictures of Jesus, his clothes are never dirty. So I'm not quite sure how that happened, but he came back in somehow. Uh, and then he says to Peter, he says, okay, Peter, I want to go back out. And I want you to go back out and cast the nets on the other side of the, of the boat that you were doing. And as he's doing that, the catch is so many that Peter can't bring him in. That sounds kind of like a familiar story that may happen later on in Peter's life. So as he's starting his ministry, Jesus teaches Peter how to fish. Jesus saw in Peter something that Peter could not yet see in himself. He saw a calling. He saw a purpose. He saw somebody way different than just a fisherman. He changed his name from Simon, which was his, his given name, to Peter, which means a rock. Uh, upon this rock, I will build my church. So he saw something tremendous in Peter that Peter couldn't see. And so he calls Peter to follow him. And Peter's reply, he broke down and wept. He said, you don't know me. I am so unworthy. It's too, I'm too much of a sinner to follow you. And Jesus says, just come and follow me. So here's a man, the lowest of society, a sinner, and he knows he's a sinner. He's not trendy. There's nothing cool about him at all. And Jesus says, I want you. As a matter of fact, you're the guy that I'm going to build my church on. Let's just put ourselves in that position for a minute. Do you ever feel like you're just not one of the crowd? Like the good crowd, the cool crowd? Do you ever feel like you just don't fit in? Do you ever feel like your sins are just... They're always in front of you. That's how Peter felt. And Jesus said, you're the one I want. What does that say about Jesus? What does that say about his kingdom? So Jesus sees the true Peter, invites him to follow him. Shame is what keeps us in that place often. Because shame, we think, whatever has happened to us defines us. But whatever happens to us does not define us. It's just what happened to us. The true Peter was still there. But he had done some things that he was ashamed of. He had done some things that he knew he was a sinner. So Peter becomes a follower of Jesus. He follows Jesus. Now, I'm not quite sure about how this whole marriage thing works here. We know that Jesus uh, healed Peter's mother-in-law, so that means Peter was married. But can you imagine just kind of saying, Honey, I'm, I'm going off to follow Jesus. And it doesn't say when he ever went back and had a family meal. So I'm not quite sure what his wife thought of Jesus. I'm not quite sure what my wife would think if I just said, honey, I'm going off to follow Jesus and I'm not sure when I'm coming back home. It might lead to a little tension in our marriage. 
So scripture doesn't say anything about that. It just says that he left to follow Jesus. He was incredibly enthusiastic. He was a go-getter. He was kind of, quite frankly, always getting in trouble. Scripture doesn't record everything, but you kind of get the impression that this guy probably didn't say all the right words at the right time. He was probably just in, in the way sometimes with Jesus. At one point, he rebukes Jesus. I mean, tells Jesus off. You can't say that. That's not happening. And Jesus looks straight at him and says, Satan, get behind me. Like, whoa, there's a real issue going on there between the two of them. Peter doesn't see that Satan is actually working through him, and Jesus is like, oh, and I wonder if Jesus, you know, if he really did have that long brown hair with curls in it, I wonder if he just kind of pulled it out and think, ah, what have I done with this guy? Oh, he's driving me nuts. But he didn't. So Peter follows Jesus. He gets to encounter demoniacs and see what's happening there. He gets to follow dead people, see dead people, and they're raised to life. He sees sick people being healed crowds. Man, if you were an introvert, do not hang around Jesus. Crowds and crowds and crowds of people would follow them everywhere they went. Religious leaders got really angry, and sometimes they feared for their, their lives, and they knew that they were plotting to kill Jesus and perhaps them as well. Uh, they were surrounded by hungry people, like at one point, 5,000 hungry people, and it's like, uh, what, how, what, what do we do here? And Peter got to see Jesus solve that. Peter got to see people forgiven, set free. At the Last Supper, just before Jesus is going to be going to the Garden of Gethsemane and going to be crucified, um, Jesus is washing each one of the disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter, and Peter says, you know, don't wash my feet, Lord. Don't, don't wash my feet. And Jesus replies to Peter, and he says, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. Here's what I love about Peter. He says, and wash my hands and my head also. Well, I don't know about you, but the two areas I sin the most easily with are my hands and my head. I don't know if that's what he was referring to. I I didn't find out the reason. But I thought, what an interesting thing to say. Then wash all of me. So he was in. I mean, he was in. If I'm going to be in, I'm in. I'm not messing around with this. I'm in. So I love that. He said, wash my hands, wash my head. So Jesus is then led into the Garden of Gethsemane. The last moments, he's off praying, and he says to his disciples, would you watch and pray with me? And they all fall asleep. And Peter falls asleep. And then the soldiers come to take Jesus, and, you know, there's one reference to where Peter gets up and slices the guy's ear off, and Jesus puts it back on. It's like, oh, Peter, 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 you can't defend what is really going to happen here. You can't stop it. And so Peter boldly, he declares in front of everybody, you know, I'll never deny you. I will follow you. I will never, never deny you. Um, But when the accusations start coming in, we all know what happens. But when I was reading that account, something that really just stood out at me, it says, Peter, he says to the woman, I don't even know him. I don't know this Jesus. Now he's just spent, looks like years with Jesus, seeing all these things happen. But he's confronted by somebody that says, are you a follower of him? And he says, no, no, I don't, I don't know him at all. And after a while, someone else looked at Peter and says, you must be one of them. And Peter says, no, no, man, I'm not. I'm not. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he's a Galilean too. And Peter says, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Most of us stop at that part of the story. But it's the next verse that really gets me. At that moment, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine? 
You've just spent years walking with somebody. You've just said to this man, I will not deny you. And then he hears me deny him publicly and looks at me. He is going to death, and I've just protected my butt. I can't imagine that exchange. Then Peter remembers what the Lord said when Jesus said, Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you don't even know me. And Peter left the courtyard and wept bitterly. Jesus turns and looks at Peter. And here's this betrayal taking place. And then he dies. At this point, Peter is just kind of off the map. Because this is not what I signed up for. I signed up for success. I signed up for church. I signed up for the kingdom of God. I know Jesus was the Messiah. He's coming back. I mean, where is this? He's dead. And it doesn't look good. And so at one point, uh, Mary goes down to the tomb and she comes back and says, he's not there. He's not there. He's alive. He's not there. So Peter, being Peter, runs down like crazy. John beats him, but they have a contest. And Peter runs down there. And he says, uh, I, I couldn't find him anywhere, so he came back. But there's one account where Jesus does appear. At one point, it says that they were seated in, in a room, or they were in a room. They were locked behind doors. They were fearing for their lives. It looked like the whole church had just crumbled. It looked like despair was everywhere. And they're sitting there, and Jesus comes through. The doors weren't open. The walls couldn't hold him back. Jesus comes and reveals himself. And he appears to them. Breathes on them and says, receive my Holy Spirit. But in Luke 24, verse 32 to 34, it says, the Lord has risen. The people were saying that. The people that had seen him had said, the Lord has risen. But there's one little line that just jumped off the pages at me this morning. And it says, and he appeared to Peter. It doesn't say that he appeared to everybody. It says he appeared to Peter. There's no comment on what that means. It's the only place in in Luke that it records that. But there's an assumption that they had a private meeting, that Jesus came to Peter. Now, just picture the love of Jesus, that this man has just denied me before my death, and I, Jesus, go and seek him out. Wow, what a Jesus. What a forgiver. What a lover. The last time they had seen each other, Jesus was being led away to be crucified, and Peter was denying him. So Jesus meets with Peter, but nothing's recorded. I imagine it was a pretty penitent time on Peter's part. He was pretty open about weeping, he was pretty open about seeing the state of his life and his sin. But I love the fact that Jesus sought him out. So Peter, you know, after all this is happening, it's kind of like, now what do I do? Well, if you don't know what to do, you go back to what you used to do. So Peter goes out fishing. But Jesus goes to the lake. He prepares breakfast on the shore, and he yells out to them, hey, have you caught anything? Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus goes to the shore of a lake. He sees Peter out there fishing. Peter, uh, says, who is this? Who is this? And somebody says, it's Jesus. And so I love Peter. He hops, he's naked, or that definitely sounds like he wasn't wearing much. So he puts on his tunic, a little bit of covering, and hops in the water and rushes to Jesus. I love that. 
And um, Jesus yells out at them and says, hey, cast the net on the other side. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Cast the net on the other side. And it's like, oh, Jesus, you do not understand. We did this last night and we didn't catch anything. Guys, do you forget? This is me talking about. The fish love me. They'll, they'll just do anything I say. So sure enough, throw the net on the other side. And they caught so many fish, they couldn't bring the net in. And that's when Peter yells, it's the Lord. Jumps in the water and goes in and sees Jesus. And they eat together. I don't know about fish for breakfast. That's, I've done it once. I think that'll only be once. It's just not my calling. Um, toast, granola, anything like that's fine. But fish... Yeah, that doesn't do it. But anyway, Jesus prepared them a great breakfast of fish, and they were all happy. And then at one point, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? More than these what? Scripture isn't exactly clear. Wasn't sure if it was actually clear about, do you love me more than these other people, these other disciples, these other people around you, more than these fishermen? Or it's likely implied that Jesus is saying, Peter, Do you love me more than your fishing net, more than your income, more than your security, more than all you know to do? Do you love me more than that? Lord, you know I love you more than these. So if you've heard this story a few times, you understand, you know, where Jesus, he says, well, feed my lambs. But Jesus is using a form of love that in English we say the same word. The form of love Jesus is using is the highest form of love. And it says, uh, you will serve regardless of circumstances. That it's, uh, it's a love of God. It's a, it's, it is the essence of God. It's, it's deep. It's an act of the will. Peter, will you serve me with an act of your will? And Peter replies, Lord, I'll serve you because I love you like a brother. It's a different reply. It's filio. It's a different reply. It implies a very close friendship. So Jesus asks again, Peter, will you agape me? And Peter replies, yes, Lord, I will filio you. So the third time, Jesus says, Peter, will you filio me? And Peter replies, yes, I will filio you. So I used to think that that meant, oh, Peter, you didn't get it right again. But it's actually, I think it's actually a pretty good start. Because really what Peter is saying is, Lord, I love you. I really do love you. I love you like Jonathan and David, same word there. It was an incredible love that only brothers could have. I love you like that. And Jesus says, and go feed my sheep. You know that I love you. You know that I love you more than my fishing equipment. You know know that I love you more than anybody else, anything else. So Jesus then, you know, after he's seen by people, he ascends to heaven and tells his disciples to wait And in Acts 2, they're waiting in the upper room, and the Spirit of God falls, and Peter begins to speak, and he speaks, and he speaks, and he speaks, and he proclaims the gospel in an incredible way, just absolutely in a way that says, this is not the fisherman that we once knew. This man has been transformed, empowered, filled by the Holy Spirit, speaking boldly in Acts 4, verse 13. It says this, when they saw the courage of Peter... And John, the first two disciples that Jesus called, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's really the summary. Jim, that's what I want you to take away. When you're with Jesus, 
your life is transformed. Absolutely transformed. When you screw up and you're with Jesus, he doesn't say, man, you screwed up. You're out of the camp. He goes after you. He may meet with you privately. He may meet with you and speak to you publicly. But he doesn't exclude you. He sees in each one of you what you can't see about yourself, and he can. He sees that you're a rock, and you don't see yourself a rock. You see yourself as a sinner. He sees stuff in me that I couldn't possibly ever dream he could do in me, and I'm not saying that to boast. I never saw it, but he saw it. He chose me to do it. And there's nothing, nothing that can keep me from that. So how do I keep this? How do I live this? How do I start this? I walk with him. I listen to him. I obey him. Not always. Sometimes we have discussions. I know I lose, but sometimes I still have those discussions. So what I sense Jesus is saying to us today, just as an ordinary group in the middle of July here in Ottawa Valley, is if you think that you have missed it in any way, It's not true. Jesus never gave up on Peter. He saw all the way through all these frustrating times when he says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. He still never gave up because he saw what that man was called to do and he was going to do it. And Peter would do it. So I love how the ending, I love the ending. Peter was never schooled in anything formal. He was just an ordinary man. He was astonished. They were astonished that these men had been with Jesus. Last week, I spoke at a Methodist church, so I did my little bit of homework, and I thought, I need to actually understand John um, John Calvin, wrong guy, um, John Wesley a little bit more, and how he was converted. So John Wesley was actually a student of Oxford, which was at that point a religious training place. He was a priest in the Anglican faith. He was a missionary in North America, But to quote what is said about him, he didn't know Jesus. That's absolutely amazing to me. He didn't know the personal work of Jesus. So he's crossing a ship coming back from a missionary venture in in North America. He's crossing on a ship and he sees a group of Moravians who are missionaries and and a group of people very devout to Jesus. Um, And he saw them and the ship is heaving and, you know, you can just imagine the whole scenario there and everybody's getting sick and all that kind of stuff. And they're all fearing for their lives. And John looks at them and says, how come come you're not afraid to die? And the guy that's the leader says to them, do you know this Christ? Do you know this Christ on whom you can give your life to? Or are you holding on to your life yourself? Well, doesn't say exactly that John was converted right away because he wasn't but those words stuck with him and he thought what does it mean to give my life to Christ a graduate of a great school a priest a missionary everything but what does it mean to give my life to Christ so John is uh, sitting one morning and he hears this scripture just pop out of the pages at him and it's about how I can be fully one with Christ I can be one with him and later that night, he goes and he hears some lectures in um, Aldersbrook in, in London. I think it's the London area of England. So he hears lectures. And let me tell you, if you ever think that a message can be boring, let me tell you what I think would be a boring message is 
John Wesley listens to the preface of the book of Romans that Luther had written being read by somebody. Now, I'm riveted to the see Kathleen Patchell would find that interesting, but not many of the rest of us. I was not riveted by that thought of just listening to the preface of Romans written by Luther. I read some of it and thought, oh my goodness, they must have had coffee. But the strange thing, he hears about being justified by faith. And he says at 845, and I believe it was May 24th, my heart was strangely warmed. And I knew that I knew that I knew I was accepted by Christ. And he accepted me and that I knew him. Wow. It leaves me with a couple questions that I just want to leave and ask myself this. You can be all knowledgeable about Jesus and not know him. And he invites you to know him. He is love. And he's just, there's nothing greater than knowing him. And when you know him and you love him, there's nothing greater than serving him and giving him anything and everything. Jesus said, if you love your life, you'll lose it. If you give your life for my sake, you'll find it. And so when it came to Peter and he says to Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter had no problem saying, yes, I do. I love you more than these. So when Peter first started off in ministry, he says he left his nets, his father, his business, his security, everything. He left it all to follow Jesus. And when Peter is again being retooled and recalled by Jesus, he leaves it all and says, yeah, I'll follow you. Are you and I holding on to something that Jesus is asking us, do you love me more than this? Is it in the way of my love for you and your love for me? Has it become an idol? Our reply is, Jesus, I love you more. So, Lord, that's my prayer this morning, that each one of us in our personal place with you will come to a place where we know that we love you more than anything else, that you're beautiful, you're lovely, you really are lovely. And that love that you have for us draws us to you and that we want to abandon and give everything to you. Lord, I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will not let these words just go idle and be forgotten, but rather they'll be like John Wesley heard when he heard the Moravians and he, he thought on these things and was stirred by them and went to you and said, Lord, what are you speaking to me? And you spoke and, and won him totally to you. I pray that our lives will be totally yours, not holding anything back, not resisting your love, not knowing what it's like to trust you, but will be completely yours because you are lovely and you love us and you forgive us and you call us. So Lord, bless our time today. Thank you for us getting together. Thank you for the sweetness of your spirit revealing Jesus to us. Amen.